Welcome to another episode of Tarvalon Talks. My name is Fenya, and I'm joined today by Thad and Veri to discuss Season 1, Episode 4 of Amazon's Wheel of Time. We'll do our best to keep all spoilers to Books 1 and 2 until the end. Okay, so do we want to start our discussion of this episode with uh, the cold open? Yes. So Loghain is the cold open for episode four, where we see him in Gildon. I hope I'm saying that right. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you got it. Gildon, yeah. All right. Nailed it. So we see Loghain in Gildon, and it sounds like his armies are tearing the city apart, and the king is running through some building. I don't want to assume it's the castle. It just looks very castle-esque. I would assume it's the castle. He's trying to escape the castle, get away from Loghain and his army. Yeah. It threw me off at first because you see Loghain is approaching the king and he starts to channel. And this is where I think is the first time that you start to see the one power being corrupted, you know, with the taint, right? Yeah. It's the first male channeler we see channeling and we get to see the taint. Mm-hmm. And that was great. Except how they visualize the one power, you start to see the one power and you see these individuals coming up behind him. And the first voice that you hear in his head is a woman's voice, someone that the credits refer to as Alusha. And it was confusing because like, who is this woman? Who is this supposed to be referring to? And I'm scroll like I'm I'm pausing on my Amazon Fire like remote trying to figure out who this is. That's how I know the person's name. But then a second figure comes up on his other side and it's a man talking. I had no idea who these people were and what they were supposed to be referring to. Do you guys have any idea who those individuals are supposed to be? That's just the madness talking to them. I'm sure there's an Easter egg there, probably, but that's just madness manifesting. Yeah. That's kind of what my take on it was as well. And it's a nice tie-in to later on in the episode, he says that like they talk to him. I don't remember what exactly he says, but he says something about like previous channelers. He basically goes the Avatar route of he hears the voices of the previous dragons. And I think this is a great way to throw a wrench in it because, you know, as book readers, we all know it's going to be a guy because that's just how it works. But, you know, in the TV, it's it could be it could be a woman, it could be a man. And having these two, you know, man, woman, sighting kind of creatures, it kind of throws a wrench in it when he makes that point that Finya said later in the episode of he's hearing the voices of previous dragons. Yeah, because I, I don't remember who I want to say it was Moraine later in the episode mentions that past dragons or past false dragons have been nothing more than men or women trying to, un- I forget exactly what she says, trying to undo the world or something like that. I'll have to go back and look for it specifically. When you think about it, it would make sense that those are past false dragons because there hasn't been another, I mean, Luz Theron was the only dragon that has been thus far. So how can there be more than one of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, except... The way, the way that Logan says it in the show is that it's all of the past dragons through all the turnings of the wheel. So Luz Theron is the most recent dragon that we're aware of. But in theory, and maybe this is getting a little too metaphysical for, the, for this particular show, but in theory, shouldn't there be more, many, 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 many other dragons for every turning of the wheel? Yeah, there is. In the books, it's stated as such, like Arthur Hawkwing was the strongest, well, he was a Taviran, but he was the strongest Taviran to ever Taviran. That doesn't make him a dragon necessarily. Like my, and I've only read the books once, so it's quite, quite possible that I have an incomplete understanding of 
the lore. Um, so if I'm wrong, please don't hesitate to, to tell me so. But my understanding was that Luz Theron was like, he was the first dragon. Like, he's the dragon. Not necessarily that there are other dragons before him. At least not going by that name. Maybe that's semantics. There is one dragon of every age, basically. And he's, you know, I wouldn't say that he's the avatar of the creator, you know, avatar of the god or whatever, but he's basically the antithesis to the dark one for every age that, you know, we have to deal with that. The dragon is basically like the champion of light and is always the reincarnation of the same soul as Luz Theron becomes, you know, the dragon for this age and so on and so forth. So technically, we only previously know that Luz Theron is the previous dragon. Okay, that makes sense. But we can assume that there have been others before him. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So I think I think probably the central point, or probably the biggest point of this episode was really everything that goes down at the Aes Sedai camp. So maybe let's save that for last. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can do that then. Okay, let's jump to Rand and Matt and Tom then. Because they've got that bit where they're running through the forest, or riding horses through the forest, and they end up at the Gridwell farm. So the Grinwell farm replaces Whitebridge from the books because, you know, they escape four kings to go to Whitebridge and all of the scene, all of the story progression content that happens here was supposed to happen at Whitebridge, which is why a lot of people were going, where was Whitebridge? You know, where's Camelin? That kind of thing. Um, so we get all of that here instead. We get a little bit more on all three characters, specifically Tom. Tom's probably the biggest of the three that we get in terms of learning a little bit more about because he's such a new character at this point agreed yeah we we get to see them try to sneak into the grinwell farm because they were gonna stay in the barn for the night and, and sleep and move on to the east as tom put it when they were leaving Breen springs we're going east the grinwells allowed them to stay in the barn after muck in the stables That's right and so and so this is different this is de this is definitely different from the books because i think whenever it's just matt and Rand in the books that end up at the farm no, Tom. I think they have to do some chores. Yeah, they basically stayed at the Grinwell farm before going to Four Kings. So that was before Four Kings. So they basically kind of reversed the order on this a little bit as well. Yeah. But then I do agree with you that, that the biggest, not character development, but character revealing, I guess we should call it. Yeah, that would probably be a better, better uh, way to put it. Yeah, in the way that Tom describes his nephew Owen and describing how Owen eventually revealed himself to be able to channel and how he was eventually gentled and then how he eventually killed himself as a result of that gently. And I think that for for non-book readers, I think that whole description, that whole story that Tom provided to Rand was an excellent way of describing exactly what happens whenever someone is gentled to give them an idea of what is going to happen to Loghain or what could potentially happen, Loghain's state of mind after he is gentled at the end of the episode. Right. But in this case, it's used as a device because they see that Matt's not acting normal. And that's where Tom suspects Oh, he can channel. You know, again, it's throwing the mystery in. Which character is it? And this is the episode that it's, oh, it must be Matt because of how he's acting. And so then there is another dream. And this time it is Rand's dream. And he's going through and he's going through. It looks like it might be the two rivers. 
but he sees Perrin. And this one was very obviously to be a dark one dream in my mind because he sees Perrin hacking away at what we, I think we are to assume as his wife with an axe. Was it an axe or was he hitting her with a hammer? I forget. One of the two. Maybe it was a hammer because he was like blacksmithing. Yeah. I can't remember now. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. You know what? It must have been a hammer because it wasn't doing any kind of damage that an axe probably should. Yeah. But then we see Matt walking away aimlessly with blood on his hands. And then we see Egwene. And then this is where we see the being with the fire eyes and the fire mouth grab her from behind. And this was the only time that I recognized a dark one dream for being a dark one dream. Because it's like, oh, that's the guy. That's the guy. That's the guy with the scary face. Yeah. (laughs) He screams a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then Tom comes and wakes Rand up and Matt's not there. But what I'm not sure of, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are on this, is why Tom wakes him up in the first place. Is it because Matt's not there? Is it because Tom hears something? I don't know that it, they say. Maybe he just figures that like Rand and Matt are friends and Rand would have a better idea of how to calm a channeling Matt or a going mad Matt down than a relative stranger would. So do you think Tom found Matt in the house with the family first and then ran out to get Rand? No, I think that Tom woke up, saw Matt wasn't there, got Rand up because, well, if Matt is going crazy, a familiar face is going to be more effective at at calming him down and settling him than a relative stranger would be. Like a sleepwalker. That's a good point. Yeah. Because then after that, they go into the Grinwell's house and see the entire family murdered. And then Matt being all creepy with the black vomit. I guess, like receding back into his mouth. Yeah, it's the physical manifestation of Mashadar at this point. So I, I, I did flip open. Rand startles himself awake and Tom is there going like, hey, hey man, it's OK, I'm here. OK, OK, OK. I missed that. I thought something like kind of like how when, how Perrin was woken up out of his dream and it was Egwene saying the wolves are coming. Like, yeah. No, Rand, Rand got scared awake, basically. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We see Matt just standing in the house. Well, what'd you say? Creepily? Yeah. Yeah, very creepily, just staring into the darkness. And he does the thing with the knife. Yeah, he's just doing the... It's like, I see you. Oh, that's so creepy. <laughs> and then the fade, the murder all shows up. And I thought that was really... I love how they did this, to, though, to separate Rand and Matt from Tom. Because then, again, this goes to Whitebridge, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That Basically, this fight would have happened out at Whitebridge because the fade was after them. He holds the fade off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So I guess here is the big question of it. Are they going to give Tom the limp for the entire show from this fight, or are they going to make it something else? Because remember, like I guess a uh, parallel to this was in the Game of Thrones – Tyrion loses his nose, but they just give him like a facial scar in the TV show instead. Was the limp really pivotal to the plot line at all? Not in the least. I didn't think so. What about you, Fenya? I don't think they're going to give him the limp. I think that he'll have a scar. He'll have some healing time, maybe. But I don't think that they're going to. I think it would be more of a hassle than it's worth for them to make Tom limp for the rest of his appearance in the show. Because nothing happens that requires him to have the limp. Yeah. It's just a reminder of what he did to save the boys. Yeah. Also, is it spoilers to talk about him coming back? I mean, we've kind of implied it, I guess. 
earlier on in the show. I think they have specifically said that he's coming back for the show, so I don't feel like it's too spoilery to really talk about that. And we have already talked about how he's not coming back in season two, so I guess it's a little late for us to consider it spoilers. <laughs> I, I think Rafe has come out and said he's not going to be in season two. So I think for the purposes of what we're discussing during season one, it's covering books one, two, and three. I don't know all what season two is supposed to cover, but it's probably go a little bit into book three, I'd imagine. Okay. Okay. But season one is really just supposed to be book one and two. But Tom is in book two. It's not a whole lot. Or is he at all? Very little. He's there at the beginning. Don't look at me. <laughs> Come on, Benya. <laughs> I mean, if you want, you could go to the Tower Library and look up the chapters he appears in. Oh, you can do that, can't we? That sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> but the Tower Library has made it very easy. Oh, yeah. Whenever you need something answered, you can you can, you can go and uh, find your answers there. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's too spoilery to talk about where he does and doesn't appear in terms of the show at this point, because... It's already been publicly stated by the showrunner. And unless you're going on full blinder mode for the TV show, why are you listening to this podcast in the first place? <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> okay, so so the last we see really of Rand and Matt in this episode is them riding down the dirt road. And there is one more thing about the Rand and the Matt scene at the Grinwell farm that I want to point out, but I'm going to save it for our spoiler section at the end. Oh, yeah. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I think you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> so then let's go over to um, the Tinkers with Perrin and Egwene. And Fenya, I love I love what you call that specifically. It's the it's that scene with Isla and Perrin. Yes. So in this particular scene, there has been like the Tinkers are having their I don't know if it's their regular celebration, like they're they're doing dancing after dinner, basically. As you do. <laughs> As one does. Unrelated to the scene with Isla and Perrin, I really like how Egwene says to Aram, well, maybe you've already found the song, when she's looking at how much the Tinkers are, are living life in this moment. I thought that was really beautiful. But Perrin's a little uncomfortable because he's still struggling with everything that's happened in the show up until now and, and everything that that he's done and everything that he's gone through. So he goes off for a little bit of a quieter moment and he's, you know, helping repair spokes in a wagon wheel or something. And he gets talking with Isla and she gives him a little bit of her backstory and why she has chosen the way of the leaf or why she sticks with the way of the leaf. And she has something that was really powerful to me where, where she says something along the lines of the best revenge for violence is nonviolence is peace. And I think that it does really well at explaining parents or or foreshadowing parents' struggle throughout the whole show between these two very different sides of his personality. I mean, there's there's the axe and the hammer, right? And I hate the fridging that that happens in parents' story in the show. But for all that it's awful, it does give a very specific reason for him to be afraid of violence. Not, not afraid of violence necessarily, but, but want to choose a different way, a better way. Aversion to it. Yeah, an aversion to violence. And, and I think that this scene in particular is really good at showing the viewer and, and showing Perrin that, yes, there is a different way. You know, you, you don't have to choose violence. You can be peaceful. Like, you can follow the way of the leaf. You, you can choose the hammer. You don't have to choose the axe. And so it, for me, it, it does a really good job at showing this or, or foreshadowing the struggle that he has. 
That's one of the problems that I really had in the book throughout the series. It was really trying to understand where this conflict came from. Yes. Well, what do you mean where does a struggle come from? Because in the first book, it's from him killing the White Cloaks. That's where a struggle comes from. Maybe... I Because he killed a man. He killed somebody. That's in the books where he gets this kind of internal back and forth with it and the whole axe and the hammer thing of, do I take up the axe? Because I've killed with that. And if I killed a man, I can kill again. And that's where they switched it to, oh, he killed his wife instead. So you get it from the get-go instead of us having to wait most of the way through season one for him to accidentally kill somebody while he's trying to protect himself. 100%. That was the struggle for me. Because obviously, I think I think I latched onto the idea very quickly in the books. Like, oh, the white cloaks are bad. They're just a bunch of bigots. And yeah, yeah, kill them. Who cares? Why are you conflicted about this? Because apparently I'm a murderous little creature. So it makes more sense for the show. And I think that's, that. I think you're right that. I think that's probably one of the reasons why they switch it up from a white cloak to his wife. Because yeah, granted it was an accident, but you killed your wife, man. I can totally understand how you would feel guilt and you would have conflict between this violence versus peace now. So that 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 makes sense in my head now. Thank you. Yeah, I also was struggling with that conflict in the books. And what you say, Thad, makes sense. I'm going to be honest. By the time I got to book 14 or whatever, I didn't remember that that was why he was conflicted about killing. Like, I feel like this is maybe a shortcoming of the books or the length of the books or whatever, but... but he spends so much time talking about how he's conflicted, but not enough time reminding the reader why he's conflicted, that the conflict feels manufactured, even if there is this very good reason for it in the beginning of the books, and that you're not likely to forget him killing his wife in the TV show. I mean, also, maybe that's just me as a reader. You know, I forget things. Well, there's a couple of kind of varying factors with it of, A, you probably only read through the series one time, correct? Once. Technically, I've read the first two and a half books twice, but that doesn't really count. <laughs> okay, yeah. So for someone who rereads it a lot, like me, you kind of remember specific scenes like that a little bit more than once through and you're just like, oh, what happened at the beginning? It's 14 books. Ah, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it in a chapter summary somewhere or something like that. Yeah. B... Not only does he, like, kill a man, there's also a little bit of other, I guess you could say, spoilery setup that we could say for the end. Because it ties into the stuff that is currently going on in the episode, but I guess they have decided not to reveal any of that stuff yet. So it could be also related to that. I won't say what just yet. Yeah, like, there's a lot in the books that makes me remember that he killed this white cloak. But not a lot that makes me remember that that is why he is having this inner conflict about peace versus violence. Yeah, that is the basis. It grows beyond that because, you know, how Perrin gets in his own head about everything. That's what starts it, basically. From book one, you, you constantly heard that he is the big, strong kid who never wants to hurt anybody, so he has to be extra careful. And he went a little too far here and he killed a man. And that's where he kind of had that mental flip in his head of, you know, aversion to violence. Even though, like you, Vary, they were bad guys. I don't care if white cloaks get killed. So why should Perrin? They, see, here's the thing. They don't see themselves as the bad guys, though. Kill all the bigots. I don't care. But we don't, we don't, <laughs> I mean, we don't really see the books from their point of view. So. No, we, we do not. We do get some points of views. Occasionally. Throughout the book series, and it's never good. It's never good. We'll just, it's never good. Yeah. <laughs> no. 
even later in the series where we get a much larger chunk, it's still not good. No, nope. not good, and it's it terrible. It's terrible. It's bad writing. It's they're just not good people. No, <laughs> they're horrific people. All right, so let's jump to the big, the big setting, we'll call it, of this episode, and that is the I Said I Camp. So they have set up this big camp. Logan's there. He's in a cave. He is being shielded by two Aes Sedai. I think the two Aes Sedai that are shielding him at first are Leandrin and Alana. Karine. Oh, no, she meets up with them. Yeah. And then um, Moraine is healed immediately by Kareni, which I could not remember. And I did not have time to look it up. Do you guys remember? Is Kareni in the books? Yeah, she's in New Spring. Oh, oh, okay, cool. I should say she's mentioned in New Spring. <laughs> in passing. Yeah, I think it's a name <laughs> that appears in the books. I don't know if it's really a character that appears in the books. Yeah, she is a green sister with Stepan as her warder from New Spring. And I don't think we ever get a point of view from her, although I could be wrong. It's been a bit since I've read it. But yeah, this specifically is digging deep into the lore to get some characters instead of just coming up with two random sisters. It's a, if you know your lore, you know who these people are. And I am so happy that they did that that just makes me happy that just warm and fuzzies they weren't just making people up off the top of their heads i love that so karini heals moraine and moraine is like you should not be this exhausted from healing me what's the big deal and karini says it's not you it's shielding Logan. And it kind of, it's a cut scene with a voiceover of Karini going into the cave. And it's Leandrin and Alana both shielding Loghain. And we we learn that it's it takes two of them, at least two of them to shield him. He's that strong. He's that strong. And you kind of see him just like on his knees, almost meditating in his cage effortlessly. Like it's not that big of a deal. And they, and, and the I said, I even call it out. Like he's like, he's just sitting there. He's not doing anything. So they're marveling at the fact that as much effort as they are putting into shielding him, he doesn't seem to be doing anything to fight it. And the only reason that they that and I think it's implied, but if you're if you've read the books then you would probably know that the stronger someone is in the power, the more energy you have to exude to shield them. So it's based on their power. Yeah, cuz cuz uh well, I guess well, I'll save that. I can save this little tidbit for the spoilery section, but yeah, it does relate to that. But then Moraine comes in and she takes over and that's when you see her, like as soon as Leander lets her shield down, you kind of see Moraine jolt a little bit whenever her shield hits his power. And he kind of, I, I don't know if he's like testing it a little bit or if it's just like, oh crap. No, he's, that's, that's what, you know, they, they describe it in the books all the time that when someone gets cut off from the source from a shield, you can... They, they kind of give that um, kind of metaphysical description of you're kind of feeling along and you feel like an invisible wall shielding you from touching it. And that's what he's doing. And he's probably trying to creep along it to try to find a weak point to, to get out because that's a thing. But how do we feel about how they depicted shielding? You know, how it's kind of like the web that kind of drapes over them and kind of settles in. I don't know how I feel about it. I didn't mind it. I didn't have any strong feelings about it. I do have kind of strong feelings about why they're just sitting in this cave with him rather than traveling. Like, but that's neither here nor there. The sh- the shielding itself, I think, is fine. I think they're just stopping for the day because I don't think more than a single day passes in the time they're there. And they're probably it's probably like, ah, it's end of the day. Let's stop here for the night. We have to shield him. Or did they specifically say that they had been there for a couple of days? I thought that they had been there for a bit. 
Maybe I'm mistaken. I'm not sure if they actually said anything or if that was just my impression. It's kind of the impression given. Yeah. And if that's the case, like, that's just kind of silly, I feel. They don't really explain why they're stopped there for any amount of time, really, whether it's a day or a week. That's getting sidetracked from your question, Thad. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's fine. I actually liked it. I liked how they how they showed it. Because honestly, if they had done something that actually looked like a shield, that would have been super cheesy and awful and not realistic. I agree with you there. You got to give a little bit more visual flair with this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of it's just implied in the books. You know, oh, it's like you just tie off a knot and they're shielded from the source. And it's like, how do you... How do you depict that visually? It's probably the best way. Just cover them in a web of Sidar. Uh, and now you know. Now you know. Put a pin in that, by the way, for later in the season. Yes, absolutely. But I guess it's the best way they visually could have shown it off. But I still don't know how I feel about it. I, I, I kind of feel kind of like, eh. Like, I feel like they could have done something else. But What would you have preferred to see? Yeah, what is it about it that you don't like? That's the thing. It's one of those things that I don't know what I would have liked, but I would have. I will know when I see it kind of thing. Like, you don't know what you want. You don't know what you want, but it's not exactly that. Okay, okay. It's a little nitpick. Gotcha. So while all this is going down in the cave, we get a much better idea. And this is, this is something that I, I really, really like about the show is it gives a lot more insight into the life and mindset of the warders. Yes. Absolutely. Like we get that nice scene with Karene and Stepan, which is the first warder, you know, I said I bond that we get to see outside of Moraine and Land in the, in the show so far, about halfway through the first season. So we get to see another set of characters with the same situation and how it affects them. And I really enjoyed seeing that because they were super close. And it seems more that they were of their relationship was more familial rather than romantic. Moraine and Land's water Isodai relationship is kind of until later episodes in the season is a little ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And whereas you get to this one and Kareni and Stepan are very like, they could almost be like older brother and sister. Like I, I would envision them to be like one of my aunts and one of my uncles. I could see that. Yeah. Just kind of like another married couple that, you know, kind of that's, that's how they kind of acted. Well, no, like they weren't even married. They were just really close brother, like a brother and a sister. Oh, I see. I see what you're getting at. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of how how I saw them. What about you, Fenya? Yeah, I really liked this because it feels like we're finally getting some depth to the warders in a way that we don't get in the books. Like in the books, we hear about them, but but they're always like ancillary. We're like they're not they're secondary. We we really don't see them ever except as kind of accessories to a scene. And so here we're finally getting insight into their personalities and and how the bond affects them. We see the different kinds of relationships, like you were saying, like we see Kareni and Stepan's familial relationship. We see Alana's romantic relationship with her two warders, Yvonne and Maxim, is it, I believe? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we're just seeing the range of relationships that a warder and their Aes Sedai can form. And it feels so much more in-depth and expanded upon, which I really, really appreciated. Yeah, it's world building that I am happy to see. Because as you said, when it comes to the warder stuff, we see some of it. 
you know, in later books at the White Towers, where it's just warders with warders, and we don't really get to see the interactions with their Aes Sedais. And when their Aes Sedais are around, you don't really get, you know, a personal kind of thing between them. Yeah, the warders finally in this scene, in this show, like, they really start feeling like people to me instead of just kind of set dressing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Nynaeve even had the comment in this episode where Lan asks her something to the effect of, well, what did you expect of me? And she even says, a lapdog with two legs. And that's kind of how they're depicted in the books. But I'll be honest with you guys. I think how they're depicted in the books and a reader's interpretation of them is entirely up to the reader. Because especially later on in the book series, I saw them as being, while they were there and they were bound, they were bonded to their Aes Sedai and they were there, they were bound to do whatever their Aes Sedai required of them, right? I saw them as being much more, they were still independent human beings. They still had their own lives. They still had, you know, thoughts, feelings, desires, um, and I saw them as being very proud people, proud individuals, kind of how they're depicted in the show. But that was my own interpretation. And that was me pulling a whole hell of a lot of extra information out of the books that probably wasn't there in the first place. That was just this, my own life experiences projecting onto how I was interpreting the warders in the book. So I'm actually really, really glad that this is what this happened in this episode because this is the, this is how I envisioned them to be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't think this is what we get of them in the books, but this is how I wanted them to be portrayed. I agree. I definitely wanted to see more than this in the book and we just, we never really got this depth of it, basically. Like, I think in the... You know, and this is not too spoilerific, but we get a point of view of Lan in book two. And that's like one of very, very few, if the only one that we ever get from the point of view of a warder. Yep, absolutely. And because we're getting that point of view of the warders independent of their Aes Sedai, we get to see a little bit more of how that relationship starts to grow between Nynaeve and Lan. It's not in... in it, especially in book one and book two, it's not, I won't say it feels forced. I feel, I, I'd say it almost feels random. I So I think I'm in the minority in this, but when I was reading the books, I did call that they were going to be in a relationship, not necessarily because there was any kind of hinting at a, the development of a romantic relationship, but just because that seemed where the story was going, like not not where the characters were going, but where the story was going. Like, like, oh, this is just this makes logical sense. Why, why would they? Why would those two not end up together? Kind of thing. Yeah, but I feel like in the show, there's a lot more development for a relationship between the two of them. Like, it feels a lot more of a natural progression than it does in in the books. Agreed. Yep, one hundred percent. Yeah, I agree with you on that as well. And it was it, it was especially beautiful whenever Lan translates the prayer for Nynaeve and that that sharing that praying for lost loved ones and bringing them that that bond that they're sharing over that not shared experience but it's an experience that they have both had. I thought that was that was especially beautiful. And we kind of get a little bit of Nynaeve's backstory a little bit with that as well, just that little snippet. It was only a couple sentences. But I think that's also helpful too, because well, in the show, I feel like she's always been a part, like she's never not been a part of this group. She's always been a part of the group, um, the core group. In the books, she does feel somewhat separate, at least for like the first, I don't know, three or four books. 
Well, it's it's basically until they get to Bayerlon, because that's where Nynaeve originally groups back up with them, because she tracked them. And that's where Lan's like, oh, you tracked yes. me, did you? <laughs> when, instead, it was in the forest outside Shadar Logoth, which is even further east of Bayerlon, after being hunted down and captured by Trollocs uh, previously. It just takes them a lot longer in the TV show to get back together, because I think not even halfway through their first book quarter of the way through the first book something like that they're already all back together so it's just a little bit more stretched out here but in that adaptative change of the tv show we get all of this nice lore and world building that we definitely did not get this early in the books mm-hmm. yeah agreed all right so then the last big event, which is which is a pretty big deal, because as Lan and Nynaeve are sharing that bonding experience is when Lan first hears the screaming. And then it cuts to that scene in the cave where Kareni's wards start going off and Loghain's army has arrived. Before we start talking about this, though, I wanted to mention something that we see in these scenes of the Aes Sedai camp, which is that we start to see some of the schisms in tower politics, which I really like because I think that's a really nice foreshadowing for, I mean, the tower is as any kind of political entity, very fractured. And we kind of start to feel some of those fractures and see some of those. Um, So I think it's a nice introduction to, to tower politics as well. Very subtle. Yes. Yeah, because while that's going on, we only Moraine is the only non-green or red and like sister that we have anything from, and she's one hundred percent not interested in tower politics, as you know, you've probably come to learn at this point. But Karene is making comments to uh, Alana or Moraine about Leandrin, and you know, you've got Leandrin off with Nynaeve trying to pump her for information, basically, and making snide comments about the blues, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm wondering if so if we if we hadn't have read the books before this and we were just watching the show, would it be that we would interpret this as tower politics or would we interpret this as Leander and just being a shit starter? Well, I mean, Nynaeve does say that woman is a snake. So maybe not necessarily right away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but once we hit the next few episodes, absolutely apparent. Agreed. Yeah, I'm trying to think because I watched the show after I'd watched it the first time on my own. Um, I watched it with my parents because I was like, this is a show that my mother is absolutely going to adore. And I was right. She did. And she read all of the books in like three months. It was crazy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she just blew through these. But but I had to get her hooked on the show first. That's impressive. That is seriously impressive. Yeah. Home. That's almost a. That's that is almost a book a week, if not more. Is she retired? Yeah, she is retired. I mean, she does a lot of stuff beyond just reading. So it was mostly reading in the evening. But anyway, my my point was, she watched the the show without having read the books. And one of the things that helped me sell the books to her was that there was a lot more politicking going on than we saw. I mean, we saw a little bit in the in the show. But she really enjoyed that. And she did pick up on that in this episode. But she's had, I mean, she's she's not had experience in politics, but she's had experience in like working in, in a large division that where there is workplace politics. So that might have helped, you know, because that's what this is, is essentially workplace politics. <laughs> <laughs> With weapons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With weapons and uh, a lot higher risk. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I'm never going to be able to read these books the same again. <laughs> and I mean, I, there's some governmental politicking too, but... <laughs> this is just Karen not being able to get her paper out of the printer. <laughs> okay, so... We cut to um, Loghain's army has sh- showed up, right? And it's being led by the king of Gildon. And Thad, your uh, your 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 notes captured <laughs> the, the end of this very uh, very well. <laughs> I felt noticed that when the arrows start raining down, what does Lan immediately do? Lan stands in front of Nynaeve. Stands in front of Nynaeve. Yes. Good man. Good man. Like unconsciously, he's looking up at the arrows, and he just like moves in front of her. Right before Alana stops them. Which, again, more like foreshadowing for romance than you ever get in the books. Yes, agreed. But uh, the, the coolness of, of, of Alana showing off her, uh, her channeling skills with not only stopping the arrows, but then changing directions. Yeah. And then having them rain down on the uh, army, the enemy army coming in. That was pretty cool. And then she gets the chance to show off her badass channeling skills a few minutes later in the forest. Well, she is the battle Aja. Exactly, exactly. And she just, oh man, she just rains hell down on the opposing army. And that was, that was fun to watch. That was definitely fun. But this was after the events of everything that went down in the cave. Yeah, these, these two were kind of happening at, at the same time as they're kind of peppering back and forth between the scenes. Yes, yes. So Loghain just casually stands up and melts his cage after he blasted Kareni and Landrin and knocked them unconscious. And Moraine comes in and they, ha- they have a little chat. Now, before this chat happens, this, this, I, this, I guess, comes in with my nitpick about how they handled sh- shielding in this because when someone in the books is shielded no access to the power whatsoever but this form of shielding infers that they can channel from inside of the shield because that's basically what happens is the the shield gets weakened because they get distracted so they let their guard down and he's able to push out on it and melt the shield right and then as they're all standing there or this happens a little later after the conversation right yeah yeah i'm getting my i'm getting my um events a little a little rattled there but but you're right, because, again, like you said before, in the books, they're cut off. And then, well, this is kind of spoilery. I'll save it. I don't, I don't want to ruin it. So, But what then ends up happening is Moraine co- like, comes in, they have a little bit of chat, and she tells him that your power is nothing compared to the actual power of the dragon reborn. She specifically says, it is but a pinprick to the raging sun that is the dragon, which put a pin in that for a little bit later in the episode yes yes <laughs> because then is when i think what what you were getting to that is is um yeah the battle's going on out there leandrin and uh Karine come in and they attempt to reshield him and as the shield is kind of i guess expanded away from his body he's channeling these like little sidine si- spikes and Karine notices it and throws a shield up in front of the other two and she gets hit as it tears through the shield I mean, they go to great lengths. The showrunner and all the people go to great lengths to make everything as accurate as possible. And I don't know, that that just rubbed me the real wrong way about how they handled that specifically. Because he shouldn't have been able to channel at all if he's being shielded. Even if the shield is weak, he would have just broken the shield and then channeled. But he broke the shield with channeling. I don't know, though. I mean, I, I agree that it's against the lore. Like, no disagreement there. 
But I feel like you would have a hard time explaining to a non-book audience why you can't break the shield with channeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm totally fine with it. it. Like, it was just one of those things that I see that and go, that's, you know, uh, what, what do they call them? The book cloaks? That's not how that happens. <laughs> <laughs> book cloaks. <laughs> I haven't heard that yet. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, just just I guess they've they fundamentally for the show changed how shielding works by doing that. And sure, adaptation it's it's fine, you know. I think it's for the better too. It gives them more agility to work within the magic system while not breaking it completely. Now granted later on the show they do break it in other ways, but at least for shielding <laughs> they haven't completely broken it. So, yeah, we, we we get we get a lot to unpack here, basically, with that because he does that. They reshield him, or as they're attempting to reshield him, Stepan feels that disconnect once Karina dies, right? And we we actually get to see our first. It's not. I don't think it's talked about yet in the show, but for book readers, you know exactly what's about to go down. He's about to go mad, and that's what he does. Runs in, sees his Isidai dead on the ground, and. What do my notes say? Stepin messes up. Badly. <laughs> Badly. <laughs> it's a pretty accurate summation of what happens. <laughs> but yes, yeah. So he you know, he 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 messes up. He comes in with his dual axes. He tries to take off Logain's head, and Logain pushes out against that shield, shatters the shield and Stepin's axes, and all the shards fly into everybody else in the room. Moraine, Lan, Leandrin. Stepin, I believe. Basically, everybody in the room except Nynaeve. It only doesn't hit Nynaeve because she was a little late in coming into the room. I mean, like, that's that's luck, not not talent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> this was not due to her being skillful in any way. Um, that comes when she sees Lan on the ground bleeding out. And this is the only the only problem i have with this entire scene is the way that the blood looks on the ground it looks like a giant sticker <laughs> they slapped <laughs> like it was just it was just very poor editing like it, it's very matte looking there's no depth or color variation to it whatsoever and i'm no i'm totally nitpicking this i was just like well that's it's not realistic what enough. is this yeah. what is this amazon <laughs> <laughs> for shame put some more money into your practical effects share Give some from Rings of Power to Wheel of Time. Please, Wheel of Time would do so much better job with that money. Mm -hmm. So Nynaeve sees Lan on the ground. Lan is bleeding out. And this is a revelation to everybody who has never read the books. And she starts to channel. And she doesn't just channel, right? Like She does an AOE heal bomb. Yes. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a perfect way to describe it. Yeah, because as she's doing this, what does Loghain say? Like the raging sun like a raging sun which i think that threw a lot of people off because nynaeve they, they mentioned previously like a few scenes back that you know men and women can't see each other's weaves so they're blind to each other visually at least a lot of people were i remember a lot of people i say a lot of people a lot of angry redditors were talking about how would he have known that she was channeling and probably from all of the dust she was kicking up out of the room about the room and and, and stuff like he could probably feel the pressure of her power just like the Aes Sedai could feel the pressure of his power when they were shielding him. That's a really good point. And that's a really good way to 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 explain it. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. The way that they did it, I thought I like it's the dialogue that Moraine and he had in setting this up 
And then him being able to see her power was beautiful. Or rather feel her power than see it. I mean, yes, if you want to stick to the book lore, which I guess you you should probably want to. <laughs> um, but I almost I almost prefer the idea of him seeing her power instead of just feeling it. Because the raging sun is a very visual metaphor, right? When you go outside and it's a very bright and sunny day and you're not looking at the sun, you can feel the sun, right? Okay, true. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I mean, I had a little bit of an issue with that specific comment and that specific scene. I I like that. I like your interpretation that he's feeling the, the pressure for power. And it's true that, I mean, I'm sure he can see the results of people who were dying are now not dying. That's a pretty straightforward show of power, too. But it, it did, just from the way that, that the conversation with Moraine had been set up, it did feel like he was supposed to be seeing her power. No, the, the, the conversation set up was solely to have the audience go, oh, it's Nynaeve, that's the dragon. It, well, I mean, sure, but I feel like, and to be fair, that is that is what it did for my mother. Like I, who, like I said, was was watching without having read. She was like, "Oh, she's the dragon. She's clearly the dragon." Um, so it was it was very successful in, in that respect. But but it did make me think that he was seeing her channel. That's the biggest issue everybody has with it. Yeah, and they have. I think that Rafe and and company have explained. No, he wasn't actually seeing her channel. But I feel like they could have maybe been a little clearer about that in some respects. But that's just nitpicking. They're just trying to keep it ambiguous. They're they're trying to keep it ambiguous so you keep guessing on who it is because you know this episode it was it could it was shown to be two people. It could have been Matt or it could have been Nynaeve. Now, don't get me wrong. I really liked that ambiguity. I think it was something that was needed for non-book readers to keep watching to the end of the season. Why are people going to to watch if they don't have this question that they want answered? So I think that they made the right decision there. But sometimes it rubbed up against how I had read the books in a way that I was not entirely comfortable with. And then and then what that also did too then, and back to your earlier point, Fenya, about the politicking is, and I don't think you realize this immediately if you're just watching the show through for the first time, but it definitely sets it up nicely for future episodes and that everybody has seen what Nynaeve can do. Because up until this point, only Moraine knows about Egwene. But everybody knows about Nynaeve. And that turns out to be a very big deal once they all get to Tarbalon. Too bad that heel bomb didn't happen about two minutes earlier, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd have, a, we'd have a Karene that's still alive. Yeah. Which I really, I mean, I know that Karene and Stepan are not main characters at all. They don't really show up ever. But I really liked them in the show. And I was really sad when she got the axe pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, no, she didn't get the axe. Everybody else did. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. So now that um, the heel bomb goes off, all the Aes Sedai jump in, and uh, Leandrin makes an executive decision. We have to gentle him. He cannot be contained. Fear him, for he cannot be contained. So yeah, there is zero zero discussion. She just jumps up and says, "Link with me," and. Nobody questions her. Moraine doesn't question her. Alana just runs in and barely looks around and immediately does that hand motion for linking. So nobody questions Leandrin. Well, we know that Leandrin has been talking to the other Aes Sedai in the camp about 
gentling him. So it's it doesn't really come as a surprise that like that's what she jumps to and that some people are listening to her. And I feel like in the moment, everyone is so caught up in they just almost died. Kareni is dead. Yeah, this guy is clearly a threat. Like we can't, regardless of what we want to do, regardless of whether or not we want to follow what the Amerlin seat told us, like we're forced at this point to gentle him. And even Leandrin brings up the fact earlier in in the episode that the three O's allow them to make that decision to gentle someone if their lives are at risk. And their lives were very much at risk. Very much so. It does kind of lead me, at least, to wonder whether or not she put them at risk deliberately by weakening her part of the shield herself. But I don't know if we'll ever get that answered or if that's just a, a nuance that we're supposed to wonder about. Well, 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 well. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yes. But, yeah, we get to see her first gentling, basically. Uh, though I, I like the way they showed it. It was like basically rip, r- being ripped out of him. Even the hand motion that she does, like she, she like grabs a hold of like this invisible group of strings and pulls. Yeah. And it literally rips it out of him. And then you see him crying. Yeah. I thought seeing him in the air was a little cheesy, but everything else I liked about it. Yeah, that was a little excessive. They probably didn't need to do that. It was just for drama. It's yeah, it's for added flair. Yeah, like he could have he could have been on his knees or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> he, I can see that. Can he see didn't that. have to be sure. in the air, you know, splayed back. But sure, he did. On his knees, pro- like like probably would have been just fine. No, no, no. On your knees is for later. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> At this point in the episode, we'll be discussing spoilers from the entire book series. If you have not finished the books and don't wish to be spoiled, you may want to stop listening now. If you're stopping, thank you for listening, and please join us next week for our discussion on episode five. Thad, I think there was some episode four spoilers that you wanted to talk about. Mine would be like mid-book spoilers, like... You know, stuff I talked about, like with the whole, they can't see each other's channeling, but they can feel it. But in the books, when they feel each other's channeling, it's just like they get goosebumps and that's it. That's how they know. And that's even like a lost thing. Like Rand discovers it with Elaine or Elaine and um, Avienda, I think, because they're trying to like, because they, they can, they can't see each other's channeling, but they figure out a way to tell if someone of the opposite source is channeling, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's more just like tingles rather than... Yeah. Tingles, goosebumps, but it's nothing more than that. And that's where they've kind of moved on a little bit in the TV show. And then the other thing for me was talking about, you know, Perrin's motive with his death. Because they also set it up, Hopper gets killed. And that's a big thing. Like, he had already been talking to the wolves with Elias. And he had made a kind of connection with this wolf hopper and then hopper gets killed and he's like he got killed because of me that's what i I forgot about hopper and the conflict that he had with hopper for sure for sure my spoiler is that damn doll that the little girl had (laughs) so the little girl on the grinwell farm she introduces the doll to matt as brigida which is just fun just fun brigida who i didn't recognize initially because i've only read the books i've not listened to the audiobooks or anything so when I saw her name, I thought Brigitte, not Brigitte. Ah. For me, it was Bridget when I first read the books. I called her Bridget <laughs> for the longest time, even though it's spelled out there that it's not Bridget. Yeah. So the first time I watched the episode, 
I didn't catch that it was Brigitte because I was like, I don't, I don't know who Brigitte is. That's not a character I'm familiar with. And then I got it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorite Easter eggs in season one is is that doll. And it's really sad because the girl dies and the Brigitte dolls in the middle of the road. It's really sad, but it's 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 one of my favorite eggs. I love I love that. Deep cut. That's a very deep cut. It's a good Easter egg. Yeah. My spoiler was that I really just hate that the show makes me like Alana because I really, really do not. I mean, she does something unconscionable later in the books that that I really object to. You know what? Fuck Alana. That's all I got to say. Like, seriously. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, agreed. Fuck Alana. But I really like her character in the first season of the show. The actor does such a good job with her. And then it's just like, once that, are they even going to do that with the TV show? Because ah, it happens and there is like no real reason that I can currently remember of there's no point to it other than she just did it. It it comes kind of in handy if you'll pardon the phrasing, I guess, because that is a horrible way of talking about it. But there's a use for it at the very, very end in the final battle, but I feel like you could get that without what she does. You could get the end result without her actions. Yeah, and maybe if the show lasts that long, which would be really <laughs> awesome if it did, when we get to the last battle, maybe they achieve the same objective in different in a different way so that we don't have to hate Alana later. And we don't, and but but Rand gets the same assistance, just in a less rapey way. Yeah, that is one change that I would. I would not mind. Yeah, exactly that. I would not mind if they cut that plot line entirely. Please do, Rafe. I know you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, Rafe, save us this. It's not fun. No, it's not fun for anybody. No. And anybody that I have talked to about this, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, nobody likes it. Nobody. Yeah. Thank you again for listening to our deep dive on episode four of Amazon's The Wheel of Time. If you have any comments, feel free to send us an email at producertvt at gmail.com. You can also find us on the tarvalon.net forums in the general section. We have a thread pinned to the top of the page. Or you can join us in our Discord channel on the tarvalon.net Discord server. We'll see you again next week for our discussion of episode five. Bye.